If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 21. Last week, we uh, wrapped up a 10-week series through the New Testament letter of 2 Timothy. And in a few weeks, actually the, the week after Easter, we're going to start a new series uh, in 1 Kings called Two Friends and One Hero. And we're going to be looking at the relationship between Elijah and Elisha and and some of the incredible, incredible miracles that the Lord performed through them. But we're also going to see how Elijah and Elisha actually point us to Christ. So really uh, excited about that, looking forward to that. But between now and then, I thought rather than start a, a, a new lengthy series, I want to do uh, embark on a three-week series where we look at, we spend those three weeks in the last week of Jesus' life. So uh, the last week of Jesus' life is, is known as the Passion Week, uh, which doesn't mean that he was particularly excited about it. it passion, we, passion is from the, the Latin term that means to suffer. And so we're, the, we look at, look at the last week of Jesus' life. We're talking about the betrayal, the arrest, the beating, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. And somewhat surprisingly, um, in each of the four Gospels, the the majority of the ink spilled is spent writing about the last week of Jesus' life. For example, in John's gospel, more than half of the gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. So think about that. Less than half of it devoted to the 30-plus years of ministry or life of Jesus and ministry of Jesus and uh, spent on the last week of Jesus' life. In Mark's gospel, six of the 16 chapters devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Everything that comes before the Passion Week, the suffering of Christ, seems to be in preparation for that climactic week. Every scene, it seems, grows in emotional intensity, weight, and so on. As one theologian says, the intensity swells until the heart nearly bursts. And so what I want to do is I want to take, for each of the next uh, three Sundays, I want to spend looking at one day, so one event of one day of Jesus' life. And you say, what does that mean? Well, today I want to look at something that happened on Monday, uh, the last day of Jesus' life. And then next Sunday, I want to look at something, an event that happened on Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. Then the following Sunday, I want to look at an event that happened on Thursday. You say, why not Wednesday? Well, there's really nothing recorded in the Gospels uh, as far as what Jesus did on Wednesday. It's called the Silent Day. And so uh, a few Sundays we'll look at Thursday. And then on Good Friday, of course, naturally we're going to look at what happened on Friday, the crucifixion. And then on that following Sunday, on Easter morning, we'll look at uh, the resurrection. All of this hopefully will give us an even deeper understanding of the suffering that Christ endured for us, uh, the love that he demonstrated, and also uh, his power. Now, I should warn you about this morning... This, uh, this fascinating passage is very controversial, and, and for a variety of reasons, as you'll see when I read it, um, and has actually turned more people away from Jesus than many of Jesus' most uh, incendiary words. And so uh, it's a very controversial passage. Let's, I'll read it in its entirely, just four verses, or five verses, 18 uh, through 22. Here reads the word of the Lord. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he being Jesus, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, 
may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So having read that, probably doesn't surprise you to hear me say this is a controversial passage that has been abused and misused and twisted. In fact, uh, so many prosperity preachers and con artists and charlatans of every stripe have used this passage and said, look, if you're not getting what you want from God, it's because you don't have enough faith. And if you really have enough faith, you want to demonstrate that by giving to my ministry. This is a way, of course, a lot of people have done it and people are still doing it. That's just the first part of the passage, or that's the second part, rather. The first part, though, is no less controversial. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He's hungry. He approaches a fig tree which has no figs on it. So what does he do? He curses the fig tree, and it withers. Uh, Liberal commentators have had a, a field day with this one, as you might imagine. They say, how can Jesus be so impatient? How can Jesus be so ill-tempered? How could Jesus be so arbitrary? What did the fig tree do to him? Why would he curse it in such a manner? Noted atheist uh, Bertrand Russell says this passage was one of the reasons he couldn't accept Jesus. After reading it, Russell accused Jesus of, quote, vindictive fury. He said, why would I want to serve or worship someone like that? Another commentator, T.W. Manson, who's a little more sympathetic to Christianity, not a Christian, but at least more open, he calls this uh, wasted power in the service of ill temper. Again, critics have, have really went after this one. They've had a field day with this one. I think if we're honest, even we have to say, okay, I mean, it's a little troubling, isn't it? Like, if we don't understand it, what in the world is going on? Why would Jesus respond in such way? Uh, There's a series of commercials uh, for Snickers where someone, you know, you've seen these, right? Someone, they they get hungry and then all of a sudden they appear as somebody more irascible, you know, Joe Pesci or somebody like that. And And then when they're given a Snickers bar, they're back to normal and they say, oh, you know, you're not yourself when you're hungry. And there are those who have said, well, what happened to Jesus here? I mean, he was so hungry. Why did he become so, so angry? Why so frustrated? Why so impatient? Well, here's the deal with the fig tree, and this is the only way to make sense of this passage, and it really helps us to understand Jesus more as well. Um, sometime in the fall of the year in ancient Jerusalem, or we can say just Jerusalem or Israel, um, the fig trees would sprout buds. So this was in the fall of the year. And and then they remained undeveloped through winter. And then when spring would hit, usually, you know, mid to late March, these buds developed into small green knobs known by the Hebrew name pagim. So they would develop into these small green knobs that people would actually eat and have eaten for centuries. And then in the summer, the pagim would, would fully mature into figs. But well before the figs appeared... Well, before they were fully matured figs, there were leaves on the tree. And so the leaves were kind of an advertisement, so to speak, that that the tree was ready to be eaten. The figs were there. So here's a picture of a 
leafy fig tree. You can see kind of what I'm talking about. You see the mature, uh, you see the leaves, you see the figs. And so all that meant was if a tree had leaves on it, then there were figs there that you could eat. There should be figs. Well, here's a tree that Jesus approaches that has fully, full leaves on it, but there are no figs. Uh, renowned New Testament scholar Don Carson explains it this way. He says, the tree stood out because it was in leaf. Its leaves advertised that it was bearing, but the advertisement was false. So it's kind of like if you drove by the, the Krispy Kreme store in South Huntsville, and there was a sign on there that said, hot and now... And you excitedly pulled over and you went in and they looked at you with a puzzled look and they said, we don't have any donuts here. I mean, how would you feel about that? Some of you start moving some things off the counter, right? Turning some things over, right? It's like if you went into, you go by, by uh, Little Caesars, you see, there's a big, right, orange sign that says hot and ready. And you go in there, you, you know, you see that, you, you're jonesing for some pizza, right? You go in there and they say, well, we don't have any, we don't have any pizza here. Well, you're going to be frustrated by that. Well, the, when, the, when the fig tree had leaves on it, it was a sign that there were figs. Uh, another commentator, Leon Morris, says, the point here is that the tree gave every outward sign of bearing fruit, but in fact bore none. So Jesus curses the fig tree, not because he has to wait a little while for his afternoon snack. Okay, this is not what's going on here. He curses the fig tree as an illustration of his response to things that should be bearing fruit and, in fact, show like they're bearing fruit but aren't. Here's our first point this morning. Judgment is reserved for those who give the illusion of bearing fruit but are, in fact, fruitless. And let me just give you a sense of the outline this morning. So there's just two points this morning, but the first point is going to have three sub-points, as, as you'll see in just a minute. But, so judgment is reserved for those who give the illusion of bearing fruit, but are in fact fruitless. So Now this is not just about being fruitless. It's not just about fruitlessness. It's about showy fruitlessness. Or said in a different way, this is really about religious hypocrisy. Acting as though we are mature, acting as though we have fully arrived, acting as though we're bearing much fruit for Christ's kingdom, when that's not the case. And isn't it stunning when we read the Gospels how much Jesus rails against hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy? I mean, he talks about it more than sexual sin, more than financial sin, more than laziness, more than any other sin, as far as I can tell, Jesus uh, condemns hypocrisy. Who were his constant opponents and uh, his, his adversaries? It, were, it was the, the Pharisees. They were the ones he was constantly sort of going against. And, and here, this passage, again, it's not really about Jesus' attitude toward the fig tree, but his frustration with the religious hypocrites of his day. And we can say, quite frankly, this is Jesus' indictment of all hypocrisy of any day and age. All hypocrisy. And the reality is, we're all hypocrites to some degree. It's just a matter of scale, isn't it? It's not if we're hypocrites. It's to what degree are we hypocrites. We all have moral standards that we passionately hold other people to, 
that we fail to meet ourselves. We all get frustrated when some people do the when people do the very same things that we do. I find myself doing this in, in marriage, in parenting, uh, just in, in everyday life. Janine has some topics of conversation. I can actually say what I want. She's not here this morning, so I, I got full reign here. Although she will, she will watch this later, so I take that back. But she does have some topics of conversation that, um, that she enjoys discussing way more than I do. Right? There are certain areas that she wants. And, and sometimes I get frustrated with that. And I think, why are we talking about this again? Why are we talking about this again? And then I catch myself. Now, it's usually too late. I've usually already ruined the meal or the evening or the date or whatever it is. But usually I catch myself and I realize I'm exactly the same way about other topics. And I expect Janine to be endlessly enthused about talking about what I want to talk about. But then I get frustrated if she talks about something that I don't want to talk about. See, it's just hypocrisy. I'm just revealing to you the hypocrisy of my own heart. Sometimes when my kids, when they were growing up, they'd say, you know, I really don't want to talk right now, Dad. I mean, can I just be alone? And I would say to them, look, you need to learn how to co- handle conflict biblically. So we need to address this right now. But then there were times when I didn't want to talk. And I just chalked it up as a long day or ministry stress or whatever it is. And I'd say, look, I know you want to deal with this right now, but, but let me just chill for a Just give me some time. You see what that is? It's just hypocrisy. It happens outside of my family. Sometimes if a person in front of me is driving really, really slowly, way under the speed limit, I have a name for that person. And I will say out loud in my car, I will say, come on, Grandpa. But it hit me the other day, I'm a Grandpa now. And so I've got to come up with another insult here. That's not going to work. So, you know, what we do is we, we criticize people for the very same things that we are. We, we, we get frustrated with people for the very same things that we do. It comes with being sinful creatures. It comes with being people who carry around the baggage of the flesh. We're quick to condemn others for the very things we do. We advertise, like the fig tree, that we're really mature and we fully arrived and we're, we're producing great fruit that everybody should take note of. When the reality is we're a long way from having it all together. And in some cases, barely bearing fruit at all. So does that mean, according to this passage, that we should all expect God's final judgment? The answer is no. There are hypocrites who acknowledge their hypocrisy and failures. And there are those who deny their hypocrisy and failures. And Jesus is railing against the latter. Remember the story that Jesus told about two men who went to the temple to pray. And one was a Pharisee. And he went to the temple and he was so proud of himself. And and he looked up toward heaven and he said, God, thank you so much that I'm not like all these sinners. I'm not like these liars and cheaters and adulterers. And I'm definitely not like that tax collector over there. He said, I'm so thankful that you've made me who I am and, uh, for my righteousness. And then there was a tax collector who came, and he couldn't even lift his eyes toward, toward heaven. He just beat his own chest in sorrow, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you remember what Jesus said about those two? Jesus said the tax collector went away 
justified. Not so with the Pharisee, the religious person. In fact, he went away condemned. Our response to our hypocrisy is not to deny it or to rationalize it or to compare ourselves to others, but to repent and trust in Jesus, the one who was perfectly obedient, the one who was never hypocritical, the one who never judged sinfully or unfairly. And his record is ours by faith. So it's not about trying to clean ourselves up and to present ourselves that way to God. Our response to this story is also not to focus all of our attention on ourselves and to fret over the fruit we've, we've been bearing or not been bearing. Our response is simply to ask ourselves, is my life characterized by ongoing repentance and faith in Christ? I asked myself that question this week, and I'll ask it to you. Is your life characterized by ongoing repentance and faith? Now, let me offer three very quick sort of footnotes to this idea of fruit bearing. Here's the first one. We can't bear fruit in our own strength. The fruit bearing of a branch is a consequence of being connected to the vine. The vine, of course, is Jesus. So the only way that we'll ever bear fruit is by being connected to and utterly dependent upon the vine, which is Christ. God works in us and through us as we humbly rely on His Spirit and His Son. To say it another way, God is the causal agent. Any fruit that is born in us or by us is because of the supernatural work of God in us and through us. But we can say that God necessarily causes those things that are alive to grow and to bear fruit and to reproduce. It's just that when we see fruit in our lives, we recognize that it's God who's the one who's been at work. Now here's a second footnote. Religious activity is not the same as fruit bearing. Now I make that point because we live in an age where it's more possible than ever before to produce things constantly. Everywhere we go, we have multiple mobile devices that allow us to send texts or write emails or to respond to emails or do short-range planning or long-range planning. So at any given moment, I'll have my Apple Watch, my iPhone, and an iPad. And I can easily sit down, I can plan and I can write schemes, and I can look out into the future, and I can write emails and all that stuff. So we've never been at a place in all of history where it's more possible to produce. And so sometimes, in fact, it's very easy for us to conclude most of the time that when we talk about fruit, bearing fruit in the Scriptures, what we're talking about is doing more. So, you know, being at more things, being endlessly active. Now, it's true, maybe for some of us, we do need to do more. Maybe we do need to serve more or give more or whatever it is, but fruit bearing is not the same as religious activity. Now, to be sure, the Christian life involves effort, striving, warring, submitting, mortifying, denying ourselves, carrying our cross, all those things are in the Scriptures. But this effort is not meant to be done in our own strength, but by the Lord's power who, who works mightily in us. So much of our efforts actually should be directed toward um, humbly attacking the beast of self-righteousness, as Luther says. 
with its self-reliance, self-justification, and spiritual pride. And so when we, when we take advantage of or we involve ourselves in the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible intake and corporate worship and spiritual fellowship and um, all of those things, silence and solitude and so on, what we're doing is the goal is greater dependence on God, greater reliance on God, and less independence. If fruit is not simply religious activity, then, then what in the world is it? Now, we want to know what, what spiritual fruit is because Jesus will say at, at another place in a different gospel that for those who don't bear fruit, the tree that, that doesn't bear fruit is cut down, thrown in the trash, and burned. So, yeah, we want to know, okay, what in the world is this fruit? Well, here's what I believe we're talking about by fruit in the New Testament. Fruit represents everything that flows from a heart that is spiritually alive and connected to the pulsating life of the true vine. So let me just give you some examples. One of those is repentance. In fact, John the Baptist, when he talks about bearing fruit, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance is, we might even call the first fruit, the first spiritual fruit. And repentance is not just, as you may have heard, doing an about-face and walking in a different direction, although that's part of it. The Hebrew word shuv, it does mean to make an about-face. But it's more than just uh, sort of volitional. It's more than behavioral. Uh, repentance is, the Greek word metanoia means afterthought. It means having done something, being broken, sorrowful, regretful for what we've done. So it's a deep sorrow that we have rebelled against God, that we have offended and hurt someone else. Only when we, when we see ourselves as broken, sinful people in light of God's holiness does all the excuse-making and blame-shifting become so detestable to us. So from that position of brokenness and repentance, we bear other fruit. Here's some of the, just some of the examples we see in Scripture. Love for God and love for neighbor. That's a fruit that comes from the Spirit's work. Joy in Christ. Peace with God and with others to the extent that it depends on us, right? Patience, kindness, faithfulness, which is just a reference to uh, obedience to Christ's commands. Now, it's overly simplistic, I think, to equate fruit-bearing just with making disciples, but I, I don't think we want to take that out of the equation. It's irresponsible to ignore the multiplication aspect of fruit bearing. So there's also, we should look at our lives and say, are the people around us becoming more enamored with Jesus? More, more enthralled with Christ and his gospel. So again, that second uh, caveat there, or footnote, is religious activity is not the same as fruit bearing. And here's the third footnote caveat. It won't be our fruit that secures for us a place in heaven. Now, I have to admit, that doesn't come from this passage that I just read, those five verses, but it does from the verses that precede and follow it. Remember, the Gospels are not meant to be taken and understood um, in small little sections apart from their entirety, but meant to be read as a whole. And this Gospel is written to a primarily Jewish audience who believed that they could do enough to earn God's favor. And repeatedly, Jesus declares and demonstrates the inability of mankind to do enough. Take, for example, in this same gospel, just the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says over and over, you've heard it said, 
But I say to you, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But Jesus says, lest you think you've done well in this area, Jesus says, no, if a man looks at a woman uh, with lust, he's already committed adultery. So what Jesus is saying is, you think you've been righteous enough, you think you've met the standard of obedience, but the standard is so much higher than you can ever reach. So Jesus spends time in all the Gospels actually destroying this notion, we might call it a, a low view of the law, but destroying this notion that we can actually do enough to save ourselves. It won't be our fruit that secures for us a place in heaven. What will secure for us a place in heaven is actually Jesus' work, not our work. Jesus' obedient life, His sacrificial death, His resurrection, His fruit-bearing, so to speak, credited to us by faith. It's also a faith, a faith that not only leads to repentance and, and, and bearing a fruit, but it leads to confidence in prayer. Look at verses 20 through 21. This again, when the disciples saw it, that Jesus had caused the fig tree to wither, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even you could say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this is a tough one, isn't it? How many of you have ever said to a mountain, be removed and go into the sea, and it happened? I mean, if you have, I want you to come and tell me about it later. I mean, I'm not going to believe you, but I want you to tell me anyway. It's not happening. How many times has it ever been documented in history? Have we ever seen it recorded in history where someone said to a mountain, be removed and thrown into the sea, and that's what happened? I've never read it anywhere. Have you ever heard anyone else tell you that that's happened to them? Did Jesus himself ever do this? We don't have any record of it. So what does he mean by this? Well, there are a lot of interpretations on this, and, and, and I don't claim to have the authoritative one by any stretch, um, but a couple of sort of come to the forefront. One, there are those who are saying that Jesus is speaking poetically, and he's, and he's referring to really the hardships in life as mountains. And, and we do this, don't we? We say, you know, we're going through a difficult time. I've got this mountain that I've got to overcome or this hurdle or whatever it is. So Jesus could be saying, only by prayer can you get past the mountainous hurdles in your life. Some scholars interpret it that way, and I, I, think, it's, I think it's a truism, but I don't think that's what Jesus means here. So as I wrestle with this, one thing stood out to me. Notice Jesus doesn't say, if you can say to a mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, it will happen. Jesus says, if you can say to this mountain, right? If you can say... Uh, to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea. Uh, Jesus is not saying, I don't believe, that faith is able to move mountains and you can, you know, if you have the right faith, you can see a mountain thrown into the sea or whatever. This mountain is a reference to the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, which would have been in Jesus' clear view at that point as on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem. Well, what's the deal with the Temple well, we didn't look at the passages again that precede this, but the temple was supposed to be a place of worship. The temple was supposed to be a place where, where people could be introduced to the living God, 
where people could spend time in prayer, right? Even where the Gentiles could come to the outer courts, the court of ethne, and they could, they could be introduced to the living God. But what had happened to the temple? Well, it had be, become this, this bustling place of commerce. If you can imagine, if you, um, you know, you're, you, you've probably seen these maybe clips of what goes on at the New York uh, Stock Exchange in New York City and so on, and just the, the, the bells and the whistles and the loudness and, the, and so on. Can you imagine trying to spend time in quiet reflection and prayer in that environment? Well, the temple had actually become much worse than that. It was supposed to be a place where people could treasure and commune with the living God, but it had become a place of greed, abuse, self-promotion. What Jesus saw when he went into the temple was abject hypocrisy. Forms of righteousness, at least, you know, People disguising righteousness, but it was actually a love for money. He saw all forms of religion, but a real lack of love for God. And of course, you remember what Jesus did when he went into the temple, right? He started uh, throwing the furniture around, turning over tables. The temple was a symbol of fruitless religion. It was a place that had the appearance of spiritual fruit, but where real fruit was lacking. Does that remind you of anything? It certainly points to the fig tree. In other words, the temple was a much bigger version of the fig tree. Jesus is actually explaining the fig tree miracle. Now, here's what Jesus is saying, according to uh, theologian Dan Doriani. Faith alone can move the mountain where dead religion flourishes. Faith alone can move the mountain where dead religion flourishes. Now, let me, let me summarize it a different way. I don't know if this will make it clearer or less clear, but This is our second and final point. Gospel fruit, all the things we want to see in our lives and the lives of the people we love that belong to Christ, is produced only through prayer that is rooted in faith. So we want to see gospel fruit in our lives. And people lament all the time for for the lack of spiritual growth they've experienced. We want to see spiritual growth in our lives, in the lives of our children, in the lives of our fellow church members. We want to see people becoming more joyful and more loving and more patient and more hopeful and more kind and all of those things. I want to see that. I know you want to see that. We want to see people, we want to see God do a revival in our community. We want to see people move beyond ritualistic, meaningless worship and become captivated by Jesus. We want to see people live lives of repentance and faith and rest in the complete forgiveness that they find in Christ. But that will only happen in our church and in our own lives as we involve ourselves in the desperate prayer of faith. My oldest son, who's in seminary now and with whom I have a a great relationship, an awesome relationship, I'm just blown away by the, the strong, godly man that he's become. But, you know, of course, he wasn't always like that. In fact, his senior year in high school, I thought he was going to kill his mother and me. Um, it, was a very, uh, it was a very difficult time for a little while. He, he was a very hard worker, very disciplined, way more disciplined and mature than I was at his age, to be sure. And so he kind of regarded himself as completely independent. He didn't really need guidance. He didn't really need instruction. And he certainly didn't need a mom and dad telling him what he could do and couldn't do, right? 
Uh, I remember we had this epic uh, battle his senior year. He uh, told me one day, Friday at 5 p.m., Friday at 5 p.m., now this is Southern California, mind you. He said, hey, I promised a friend of mine uh, that I would go pick him up in Riverside and give him a ride. And I said, yeah, you know, it's 5 o'clock, it's Friday, there are going to be literally 18-lane freeways that are bumper to bumper. I, I, don't, I don't want you going all the way to Riverside. He goes, I promised him, Dad, I would do that. I said, I didn't tell you to promise him that. That's, you, that's on you. That's not on me. I said, no, you're not going to. He said, I'm going to take the car. I'm going to go get, tell my, do, uh, pick my friend up like I told him I was going to. I said, no, you're not, actually. You're not going to do that. And this went on for about, well, it seemed like two hours. It's probably more like 10 minutes. He was very upset at me. You don't understand, Dad. I made a promise. I said, I didn't tell you to promise your friend at 5 o'clock on Friday you're going to go through LA, whatever, and, and, you know, and pick him up. Uh, well, there was a short period there of his senior year where you know, he was very uh, impatient, harshly critical, ungrateful, and we had some really long arguments. Um, but but Janine and I, we just started praying, and we just pleaded with God just to soften his heart, to soften our hearts, to reveal sin to him, to reveal our sin to us. And it was amazing to us to see the work that God did, um, where God continued to grow and, and change and mature this, uh, this young man, this young 18, 19-year-old. God continued to chip away edges. And, and, and he also revealed our sin to us. I had to go to him uh, multiple times and say, I'm sorry. I blew it when I did this. I was wrong. I want to seek your forgiveness. The scriptures are clear on this. God works through the prayers of his people to bring about gospel fruit. Prayer is the means by which God blesses his people by bringing about his will. The prayer of faith. Now, what about this statement about doubt, though? Jesus says, if you have faith and do not doubt. We all have doubts at times. In fact, uh, the Bible gives us permission to express our doubts directly to God. Abraham, Jacob, Job, Moses, David, the list goes on. They express their honest, heartfelt doubts to God, and God comes nearer to them. He doesn't push them away. So what does Jesus say here when he says, whatever you ask in prayer you receive if you have faith? What does he mean there? If you have no doubt, verse 21. Well, the sort of doubt that Jesus is talking about here is not asking questions, you know, will God answer my prayer? It's not having, you know, internal conflict about, you know, whether thing, how things are going to go, whatever. This, is a, this doubt is a reference to, uh, most scholars agree, conflicted loyalties that disrupt the purity of faith. In other words, it's confessing God, confessing Christ as Savior and Lord, but living as though salvation were dependent fully on us. I sometimes share with my family uh, bits of my sermon before I preach it. So I'll send a text out on a Friday or Saturday and give them a bit of a preview. I'd like to say they really love that, <laughs> but they don't. Uh, but I did yesterday, I sent, I sent them this text from my sermon prep today. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The greater fool confesses his belief in God, but lives as if there is no God. 
No love, no devotion, no worship, no repentance, no gratitude, and no obedience. You can see that was probably Julia who loved that. Um, I got ghosted by the rest of my family on that one. Um, but what I want them to know was, you know, there, there is, of course, the fool says there is no God. But the real fool is the one who says, oh, I'm trusting in Christ. But really living as though salvation depended on himself or herself. Believing that it'll be by good works or attendance at church or giving or sacrifice or service or whatever it is that that, per- that, that person will be saved. This doubt that Jesus talked about, again, is a divided loyalty. It's the failure to fully recognize that the only answer to our problem, the only hope for our healing, the only remedy to the brokenness of humanity and our separation from God is found in Jesus Christ and His cross work, not in our own obedience, not in our own family lineage, not in our church attendance, not in our own sort of moral improvement, only found in Christ. It was His work on the cross that secured our forgiveness. It was His obedient life that gained for us a righteousness not our own. Jesus never judged hypocritically so that we could be regarded as earnest and faithful and obedient by faith alone. There is no salvation in anyone else but Jesus or in anything else but Christ alone. And a recognition of that, an undivided loyalty to that truth, to that person, leads to a posture of repentance and faith and leads to the production of gospel fruit for God's glory and in response to our prayers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you that in Jesus Christ alone we have forgiveness, we have salvation, we have a sure and steady anchor. When temptation floods in, when we fail to obey you, we give in to the same temptation yet again. When we sin against you, when we wander off and love other loves, love other things, we know we have in Christ the sure and steady anchor for our soul. And I pray that you would give us the grace this morning to rest in that with undivided loyalty, that is, believing only in Christ, His work on the cross, His perfect obedient life, His resurrection, as our only hope for forgiveness. And I want to pray this morning, Lord, for the one who's here this morning who may be outside of Christ, maybe a visitor, maybe someone who's just new to our church, maybe someone who's been a part of our church for years and years but is not really trusting in Christ. They're trusting the fact that they've been a good person or that their mom and dad were believers or that they've never done any of the terribly heinous sins, whatever they consider terribly heinous. Father, I pray that you would do a work in bringing them to repentance and faith. And I pray for all of us, Lord, you'd help us to depend wholly and completely on the work of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.